Hi everyone, Boris here. Sorry for the quick interruption, but I have to tell you about some exciting new job openings that are added to the LogTechies job board. Have you heard of the LogTechies job board? LogTechies is the first hand-curated job board for the field of logistics technology. That's where I post the coolest LogTech jobs at those companies that I currently find the most interesting. Brand new to the board is Bex Technologies from Stuttgart, Germany. Bex is building a logistics platform for the construction industry that helps companies coordinate deliveries to construction sites. I've had CEO and co-founder Leonard Paul on the podcast before, and I know they're going places. Right now, they're hiring for a number of exciting roles, including a CFO, COO, and a head of logistics. Alaiko from Munich, Germany is another new addition to the LogTechies job board. Alaiko offers seamless e-commerce fulfillment for fast-rising online shops and e-commerce brands. The company raised $30 million in a Series A round earlier this year and is now on an ambitious growth trajectory. They are looking to fill a number of sales roles, for example, for junior as well as for seasoned professionals. You should definitely take a look at Alaiko's openings. Aside from Bex Technologies and Alaiko, you will also find exciting roles from TradeLink, Noise Technologies, FanRide, Sender and others. Please have a look and follow the board so you can stay updated on when new companies and jobs get added. You find the LogTechies job board at LogTechies.com. L-O-G-T-E-C-H-I-E-S.com. LogTechies.com. All right, and now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgentreer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and today we have a very special guest on the program. I'm typically very careful about using the term legend, but if you're inducted into the Logistics Hall of Fame, then the term logistics legend is quite appropriate, I think. Our guest today is Lynn Fritz, and tomorrow, on November 25th, 2021, Lynn will be inducted into the International Logistics Hall of Fame at a gala reception in Berlin. Lynn was born in San Francisco in 1942, and starting in the 70s, Lynn built up the freight forwarder Fritz Companies into a global organization of 10,000 employees in 120 different countries. Lynn sold his company to UPS in 2001. Afterwards, Lynn founded the non-profit organization Fritz Institute with his own funds to support NGOs around the world with humanitarian logistics. Today, Lynn is regarded as the founder of logistics for humanitarian organizations. So, of course, we are very honored to have Lynn as a guest on the Logistics Tribe. Today's episode is supported by our partner Grey Orange. Grey Orange is a major player in the field of smart robotics in logistics and fulfillment. The company combines its AI-based platform Grey Matter with fleets of intelligent mobile robots to take warehouse automation to the next level. If you're interested, there's a very helpful webinar coming up on December 2nd with Grey Orange and Active Ants, a leading e-fulfillment specialist based in the Netherlands. That webinar is run by the German Logistics Association BVL and is in German only. If you're interested, I leave a link to that webinar in the show notes. And now, on to our show today with Logistics Hall of Famer Lynn Fritz, hosted by Marco Prügelmeier. Enjoy! Lynn, welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Nice to have yeah. you here. <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to be here as well. I mean, logistics has been my entire professional career. So it's uh, certainly familiar to me on a generational level, not just for myself, really. 
Yeah, and you just got rewarded or a new member, brand new member of the Logistics Hall of Fame. And you are now actually in one row with Eugene Bradley Clark, who invented the forklift and uh, Henry Ford, actually, and Jeff Bezos. That so is how does it feel like? <laughs> and Henry Ford and Malcolm McClay, the people you may not know. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, I mean, obviously, that is remarkably distinguished company, uh, whether I deserve to be in that or they're just having a smaller down year, I, it's hard for me to say, but I'm delighted to be in that company because they all have made what my whole life has been. And that is to make logistics and supply chain a strategic element, not just a functional one. When I grew up in this arena, you know, logistics was considered by and large across the world as a interesting, crucial, functional thing something like plumbing or different things, but not really boardroom elements with the exception of the military. Logistics was a uh, military term for 300 years because they mm -hmm. understood you win or lose. It was not adopted by commercial industry until I took my company public in the late 80s. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, logistics was not a use, a word in use, nor was supply chain, by mm -hmm. the way. So came, are they came uh, much later, right? <laughs> precisely, precisely. Yeah, and if we start right at the roots, uh, Lynn, where got you first in contact with logistics? My father ran a small company called the Arthur J. Fritz Company, which was a customs house brokerage company uh, here in San Francisco, which again, logistics wasn't part of that. This was a document company. It had everything to do with international trade because we were expediting customs clearance for importers that were importing into the port and through the airport of San Francisco. And after I, you know, I went to law school at night, but then I wanted to work. I, I love the idea of international trade. And I thought that as opposed to being one small, small piece of a very complex transaction from beginning to end, if we could actually build a company that would underpin all of the elements of the entire transaction from purchase order to delivery. That's what I wanted to do. So I joined my father's company at 23 or 24, went to law school and then took it over a few years later and have run it and owned it ever since. So you basically grew up with logistics, right? So I did. Okay. I did happily. And one big step was to actually start the humanitarian logistics. Part, yes. Uh, that you yes. were actually nominated for the logistics. Yes. Of fame. Yes. And how, yes. how did that happen? And, and how did you get into that? Yeah. It, well, like everything else, Marco, you need context and I'll be happy to provide it. The Fritz companies went from a, small company here in San Francisco. And by 2000, we had 11,000 employees around the world in 120 countries. And during the course of those 30 years, this was not a fast track mm -hmm. thing. It took me 35 years to do that. What we found over the course of time that there were many disasters and different things all over the world that impacted our ability to do business. Mm -hmm. And we did some things that we hopefully could keep our offices open. But I really found that it was very difficult to rely on any local institutions to respond effectively to disasters. And of course, I also found it that we could really be asking humanitarian aid organizations, you know, to help out the private sector. And so when I sold my business to uh, UPS in 2001, they 
came to me. I didn't look to sell my business. I wasn't looking to sell it. They, mm-hmm. you know, came after me because it was a good combination for them. And I mentioned that because I said, geez, I, I'm not looking to retire. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife, interestingly, said, well, you know, this will allow other doors to open. And have you ever considered humanitarian aid? And I, it would be hard for me to exaggerate. <laughs> this was to me like a eureka. Because I, I said, geez, you have no idea how profoundly good idea that is. And the reason I thought so was because I saw the industry of freight forwarding and uh, supply chain grow over the 30 years from being a very, very underutilized and somewhat unprofessionalized industry to being something really very, very important and very strategic. And I had every reason to believe that the humanitarian sector was probably back to where I joined Fritz Companies in 1970. And after a very significant amount of research, some of it done by my wife and five or six other business professors that I sent around the world to say, I don't think it's working very well in logistics, but why don't we really get hard data and spend a year or two of my own expense to see and to understand really what is the status of logistics and supply chain within the humanitarian sector. So they went out to the uh, Red Cross, Red Crescent, to CARE, to MSF, uh, Mission San Frontier, to Save the Children, and to the UN, the World Food Program, and all basically all the larger actors. And we did find out that, uh, indeed, logistics was at a very modest stage. And with that in mind, I created the Fritz Institute uh, with totally the idea of helping the actors, the humanitarian actors themselves, really take advantage of 30 years worth of experience within the private sector that we developed to have a world class company on every respect, and hopefully to you know assist them to be able to come up and develop over a period of years. So that's how the Fritz Institute was started. That's why it was started. And we've been doing it for now 20 you know, plus years and uh, happily uh, with quite a bit of success. Amazing story, Lynn. Can we go a little bit deeper on the logistical differences from a normal logistics company yeah, that you were basically coming from right. to the humanitarian logistics and the disaster logistics because i just didn't never had any contact to that so what are the differences i could could imagine that there are no roads anymore if there is a disaster or there is no infrastructure or no telecommunication and i don't know those might be some of the topics that you encounter those those are the tactical elements that we encounter the Mm -hmm. philosophical or strategic distinction was was probably the largest. And I would say that the whole idea of the commercial side of supply chain and logistics is totally predictability. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to have manufacturing abroad. You want to have it work on a certain time frame. You want it to be transited in a certain manner under mm-hmm. certain conditions, ideal conditions. You want it to get wherever it's going in good order and in a timely fashion. So the next part of manufacturing or use or or consumers, you know, could be able to get their goods. And that's what I did for 30 or 40 years, and it still is going on in humanitarian aid. 
Mm-hmm. There's no predictability. Mm-hmm. Nobody is looking for a disaster or, you know, the, uh, uh, you, to your point, roads and airports are closed. Uh, people are in shock. Uh, it is a totally, utterly unpredictable set of circumstances. The location, the infrastructure that may or may not be there, good or bad, mm-hmm. and how to get and put things there. So the real challenge, and it's a tremendous challenge uh, that the humanitarian aid organizations really have to deal with, is that. And so, you know, I guess that's the best way I can answer your question. I mean, the context of what it is in the commercial sector and what we try to do and the engineering and uh, the processes that we develop were all to do predictability. And so the biggest thing that I thought we could offer is to give them preparation and methodologies so that every crisis wasn't just its own unique animal <laughs> with a unique you know, solution or set of solutions uh, and to create standards and methods of operation so that people could be trained, resources like data processing or IT could be developed. Because up to that point, uh, almost every crisis was just a unique set of heroic circumstances mm-hmm. that, that the humanitarian aid people uh, you know, felt. And so I thought the combination of what we were doing, how we did it, could be of great service. And thus the distinction and thus my interest in addressing these areas. And I guess one main point of a disaster is that you never know when it's going to happen and where it's Precisely. going to happen in the world, right? And it's that you have right. to react quite quick to it yeah? because people need help right. there and they need goods. Precisely. So what would be the first steps? Or maybe you can give us an yes. example for, of a disaster that you experienced even so that we can think a little bit into the situation or get a little bit closer on how to treat a disaster. Because there are actually, this is also interesting for companies, how to react to disasters. This is absolutely correct. Companies, uh, institutions, cities, Mm -hmm. you know, you had recent floods in Germany. I mean, who would have ever expected that Germany wouldn't be able to easily handle this and this could never get to crisis proportion, but it did you know, in Westphalia and these areas. So the aptitudes and, and the things that we're talking about have application to the humanitarian sector, uh, you know, that we basically serve, but certainly every bit as much to uh, city, county, government institutions that are impacted by disaster and have some function to be able to resolve and make uh, uh, adequate address to these areas. So with that preface, I will Mm -hmm. say that uh, why don't we talk about maybe the tsunami in 2004, only because it was probably the most and may still have been the most worldwide known disaster. It was unique in a thousand different ways. The significance was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, And anybody that was alive during those times was aware of it and, and the extraordinary dire consequences that followed from that. Let me bifurcate this, my comments to you. One would be, I'll, I'll use the tsunami, but before I do, the key to any successful response to a disaster is really how much preparation that can be done is actually done prior to a disaster. In so many ways, I'm delighted that we we're very well known to the humanitarian sector because we do all of the dry anonymous work behind the scenes. You know, we're not there with our hair on fire, you know, going there and putting our fingers into the dick. I mean, you know, we are there 
behind the scenes and trying to get people and institutions prepared for disasters and for whatever. So begin the, the acknowledgement. So we started with saying, well, you really need much more uh, technology because technology was a very modest stage in almost all humanitarian. They all had technology, but it really was never technology that was of the depth and width that could really respond to a disaster like the tsunami. But that had to be done first. You can't create an IT program, you know, when you're really trying to engage. So what we did, just to use the tsunami as an example, two years before that, we had worked uh, two and a half years, almost three, I guess, because the tsunami was in 2004, I think. Since like 2001 to 2004, we had worked with the International uh, Federation of the Red Cross, Red Crescent, you know, which was headquartered in, uh, in Geneva, and had the same discussion with them to say, you really have to. And they said, well, we don't have the resources or the time or the people to do it. I said, well, then that'll be one thing that we will engage in at our expense, because they didn't have the wherewithal and they don't have budgets. Most humanitarian aid mm-hmm. organizations don't have budgets yeah. or backroom infrastructure things. Especially not to prepare and to do something in advance as a precaution and preparation, right? That's where yes. the money is not spent. It's spent on the disaster itself and on the, the help itself. Marco, that is the key gravamen point of this whole discussion of what we do, why we do it, what the problems are, the issue. That is normally it, just like it was in Germany or with a city. I mean, people do not have budgets for disasters that may not be there on their watch. And why would they be spending money there when whatever? Because it's not the point of the spear. Mm-hmm. It's the actual manufacturing of the spear. Yeah, right. if you want, and, you know, so your your point is well taken. And so what we did uh, back to uh, that is we developed a software, and we did it for the International Federation of the Red Cross because they were the largest and most complex organization. So we thought if we're going to start to be a help in general, why don't we? But what we have to do is not just to use stuff that we've already developed ourselves and say now you use it. Mm-hmm. It is a very laborious process to say, no, we'll make it adaptable and adoptable by our customer and by the unique elements that face humanitarian aid organizations. And so it was a very costly, extremely time consuming thing. But I'm happy to report in 2004, they got many, many awards on this. They were the most technologically prepared humanitarian organization in the world uh, at that software or yes because of this what does the software do is it like a checklist on now you have to do that and next thing first of all the, the main thing it did was to identify where everything that was ordered that would be going and by the way this was india this was bandarache this was indonesia this was not like a local uh, thing this was an enormous thing and so uh, like in any disaster though no matter how bad sri lanka was extraordinarily impacted they did some of their best work there actually in sri lanka so what the software did is very commonplace stuff it's just hard to develop it what everything that they ordered from tents to food to whatever things that they needed to medical supplies, the order process was done in a technologically in a digital fashion. 
not in paper fashion, yeah. which would yeah. be the normal deal. The function of what they were ordering and what they got and the timeliness of it was all now programmed as opposed to, did we get some, did we not? Is it early? Is it late? Do they have anything? Uh, you know, do the vendor really make it all? Where is it? Uh, just these key fundamental questions. I wish this is not very sexy stuff for your readers. And that's basically like building up an, an ERP system for a company, which is not a company, it's a humanitarian organization and it's a disaster and you have to build up basically the same. So where did you order the tents and right. so on? And how many are on the way? Where are they right now? And when are they arriving? And so on, right? I should be conducting the interview with you, Marco, because you made the two most brilliant. Well, no, that is an absolutely perfect way just of analogizing this. Yeah, just that, two logistics that, guys talking to each other. You know? There you are. But it is like, I, I didn't know whether I wanted to use that word for your listeners, but yes, it would be like making, and it was, an ERP system that had a very unique application, but that had to be involved with all of the people in the chain, the carriers, the manufacturers, you know, the things themselves, the people on the ground, the warehouses from which uh, it was being drawn, et cetera, mm -hmm. had to be engaged mm -hmm. technologically to make this work. And that was really, that was an exciting thing. And it really made a uh, difference because all these organizations are just, uh, I use the word heroic. Well, they yeah, are. Yeah, they're yeah. heroic. They're out in the worst places, mm -hmm. doing the worst things under the worst damn conditions. Yeah. And, and, and also they almost never have enough tools mm -hmm. to be able to do their job with the any kind of, anywhere near the effectiveness that they would really want to do. So this was a typical Fritz Institute thing. This is all engagement mm -hmm. before the fact, mm -hmm. time, money, effort, anonymous, so that something good, good could happen yeah. <laughs> when the bell rang. And that's why I'm getting, I was amazed that you could even find us because mm -hmm. what we do never gets headlines or, you know, nor do we want them actually, but it's, okay. it was interesting that the Hall of Fame picked up on this. <laughs> it's good to point out this work that normally is behind the curtains, right? I think that was one point that was really important for a lot of the people yeah. in the jury to the Hall of right. Fame. But right. let me ask you maybe an emotional question regarding those disasters. When you established the software and everything, was there one moment where you could really see the, the impact of your work and where it got emotional for you in, in some way that you could see, okay, that's yeah. the impact now. Well, yeah, there are many examples of that, although they all come out later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when we interview uh, people, one thing the Fritz Institute did too that was unique, also, by the way, at the tsunami, was, was that one thing that hardly ever happened was a organized way of trying to find out the impact and the quality of humanitarian aid service to the beneficiaries that were under siege, you know, it, you know, being impacted by beneficiaries or the, essentially the victims of disaster relief or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. There are people, of, of course, have had interviews with uh, different uh, people, but we did one of the first ever that could actually be you know, written up as case studies. There's a certain mm -hmm. discipline, a uh, university case studies that could be written about uh, things of this nature. And going from, again, Bandarache to Nagapatnam uh, in, in southern, you know, by Tamil, in the Tamil province uh, in India uh, and the rest. I guess one thing we were able to find in India was that 
and in all disasters, is that if it's the local people, they have to be engaged, people on the ground, not just people flying from overseas or the rest. They can help and support, but it really has to be people on the ground that know the ground, that know the people, that know who's been impacted, that know what's broken and what's not. And one thing our, our, our software and our outreach you know, was able to do was to find local organizations that were really key to knowing exactly what families were being impacted, where the water had risen, et cetera. Interestingly, in India, this is a heartwarming one and a rather unique one in that was that Bollywood movies are extremely big in India. You may know, I mean, Indians are, have a lovely interest in music and movies that are produced mm-hmm. in India. And the stars of those movies, like in many places in the world, are very, very big. St- and they have fan clubs. We found, uh, you know, I know this is what in Nagapatnam, I know there were others a fan club of one of the movie stars, which was regional. He was he or she was a regional star because they have regional mm-hmm. you know, movies there. there and this was a very, very rabid you know, group of younger people that were fans of this particular star. Well, we were able to find them. And they, because they were across this entire area, and they were local. We were able to put together the Red Cross. We were able to put together care, some of the local people that work in the area, civil servants and things that were working in the area together to actually help out the families that were in really crisis. I'm talking about up a tree, mm-hmm. you, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and there were some very old people that if something did happen within another 10 hours, I mean, they would have died yeah. or been, uh, you know, et cetera. I mean, really. And so with the help of this organization that knew the families because they were all local, like in your neighborhood, wherever you live, Marco. And so they were able to pinpoint what was needed, what was the most important thing to be done. And we were able to work and with the technology, both with the Red Cross, but also the other local people there say, here's where it is. And it's in street such and such and talk to Marco or Mira or whatever, because mm-hmm. they will be there. It sounds very Amazing rustic story. in a way, but that's how success, that's really what it takes to respond to a real disaster is these personal, knowledgeable people on the ground and them being capable of tools to use their knowledge of the crisis mm-hmm. to actually do something, you know, to have some resources to do it. Amazing story, Lynn. So a Bollywood fan club basically uh, helped in the disaster region uh, because they knew the neighborhood and everything and the people and they they could help. Wow, that's that's really amazing. They knew who was where there were little babies, when uh, families that were three, the older women, the men, Mm -hmm. uh, on and on. They knew all of this because they were neighbors and friends and they had a society and network you know, was able to expand in a very, very appropriate fashion. Lynn, a lot of the disasters, and you mentioned also Germany and the flooding in Germany, are natural disasters. Climate change plays a role, Yeah, at least uh, uh, most people believe that. What is your experience of the long years that you had with disasters and, and natural catastrophes and things like that? 
I can only report what almost everybody in the world knows now. You know, it's no longer a theoretical element that the climate change has exacerbated both the intensity of, the magnitude of, and the number of things that every place in the world. I mean, it's mm. not uh, located in the North Hemispheres or the Southern Hemispheres, you know, et cetera. And uh, what's most troubling, of course, really is the magnitude. And so, uh, you know, to me, I see, you know, what our work has been and certainly the humanitarians, but now more and much more towards the civil authorities. This is their problem. It's uh, mm -hmm. the humanitarian aid is where there's really not any infrastructure at all in third world countries and things. But this is a first world issue. This is nothing to do just mm -hmm. with a uh, the rest. And as a result, I guess my message is, to answer your question, is that as a first world issue of vast significance, the preparation of and the infrastructure development of and, and the rest is now no longer a luxury or thing they can avoid, but something that they do actually have to start working on. We had a uh, one of the Fritz uh, Institute things was actually here in San Francisco. Actually, all of our work had been done internationally since its inception. But the city and county of San Francisco and the charitable and philanthropic side, interestingly, had developed and said, we know there's going to be an earthquake. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of when. And we really better do something now mm -hmm. so that we don't have a Katrina or other things that where we just will put our citizens in such horrible shape. And, and, and all of it, again, was this backbone preparation of the facilities, methods, and standards of performance that we certified that they have an alarm, who gets called, what happens here, and then, you know, mm -hmm. and have all of the sites been organized in a way. And one of the areas that we really concentrated in were actually the nonprofits in San Francisco. One, because they're usually underfunded, because they are the ones that usually touch the most impacted parts. Because one thing almost universally about disasters is it normally disproportionately affects the poor, the underprivileged in a vastly more profound way. Yeah. And so uh, we felt that if we're going to be smart and thoughtful about this, why don't we make sure that the most prepared people, first of all, are the NGOs and charitable organizations that support these communities to begin with on a day-to-day -day basis. And to answer your question, so the, to me, this is the only thoughtful way, in my estimation, that cities, counties, you know, whatever authorities there are, political and otherwise, and institutional, can really begin to respond to the inevitability mm -hmm. of this climate change and the, again, the significance, magnitude, and uh, occasions, you know, that mm -hmm. they come. But it can be done. It's hard work. It's really hard to get money to do it because they've got so many problems to begin yeah. with. They don't want, you know, can we really spend money on preparation on something that may not be on their watch? It's a hard, really difficult uh, uh, problem. What do you think, Lynn, can logistics or the whole logistics industry do to reduce the impact on climate change and CO2 emissions? Do you have some ideas yeah, well, on, there, on that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think this will be the broadest area 
of uh, academic research and uh, functional application in the next 20 or 30 years. I, uh, and it's starting to get there now. This was not even a area of expertise, uh, essentially. And I, I mean, academic, where there would really be research papers uh, and, and really so hard evidentiary facts, uh, you know, being developed. Universities are now taking, uh, you know, this on. Certainly every company is taking it on and, and taking it on in a direct or indirect basis. Just in the United States here, for instance, I don't know what it's like in Europe. The car manufacturers are, we don't even have enough cars. And why don't we have enough cars? Because there's not enough circuit boards or there's not enough, you know, the, the uh, chips to be able to do it. So what is beginning to happen is, and it does reflect or, or address what you're talking about, that as opposed to having these worldwide delicate and fragile supply chains that are also not very green because of the distances involved, the amount of ships, the size of the ships, the size of the truck, size of the airplanes it takes to be able to maintain a super global fragmented and uh, uh, delicate logistics or supply chains. Just the impact now is just in time is going to be much closer to home than it is. And certainly, of course, the carry the logistics providers which I think was more of your question, uh, you know, themselves, uh, the truckers, uh, uh, warehousing, shipping, uh, you know, people are all doing things to lower the CO2 ratios of their ships, of their vessels, and essentially making them more efficient. And the good news about that, uh, Marco, is that there is a correlation here uh, that the efficiency gained actually pays for a little bit of the premium that one has to do to incorporate new practices and methods. Mm-hmm. And, and that is where the logistics industry, I think, is really shining now. I, to get to that midpoint to say, how can investment, good investment, make us efficient enough so that we're not just paying premiums to be able to be good citizens and mm-hmm. to make a thing, but how can we actually make this a win-win situation for our company, for the customers of our company, and for the shareholders of our company as well. There's good things coming on that. I'm very delighted to report that. I love that you see that as a chance for the future to do this transition towards CO2-free logistics. Uh, that's, uh, I think so too. It's been an underpinning of my life to try to say, what can we do now that's good for the future? I mean, that's how Fritz Companies was really born. I just wanted to make a company that could actually be not one small piece of a fragmented, what was in the future called a supply chain, but to really orchestrate it in a way. And that but takes years to do that. But the results are, are usually dramatic if you stay with it and uh, are dedicated to the ends. And I'm sure this will be the case in logistics and in general in the world, I mean, as a response to uh, climate change and, and in response to the atmosphere. So a lot more projects for you in the future then. Well, <laughs> well I mean, it's one, one thing I'm doing and we had, uh, you know, meetings uh, you know, a week or so is actually regenerative farming mm-hmm. uh, at uh, my winery. We make ultra premium wine. It's very expensive, lovely wines, I'm, I can assure you. Uh, and the matter and intensity we take, because we do all of our own farming, everything is done self-sufficient. Uh, we don't outsource anything because we want to be in control of what we do. I mentioned that because the farming 
has to a great extent the United States been somewhat outsourced to farming companies and mm-hmm. so landowners and and the rest can have variable costs as opposed to uh, fixed costs. <laughs> Ours is a fixed cost thing. And I mentioned that uh, mainly because now what we're really trying to do is to see what we can do to really enrich the soils to the point that they can to continue to be self-sustained. There's nothing we're taking out. We're actually, what we're doing will not only regenerate it, but it will continue to regenerate. And by the way, this will be the best thing we can do for the vines that are growing in our soil. This is the best thing we can do for our customers who will also continue to have unbelievably high ultra premium wines and uh, good for, uh, you know, for the ownership that they're creating, that we are continuing to create a company that mm-hmm. uh, the response on this. And, and uh, so that's one, I know that's a long way from logistics. I, I <laughs> but we, I have a company called Linco, which is a logistics company here in the United States. And we're doing a lot of the same elements here. How could we simplify with technology Uh, basically, you know, as opposed to technology being an enabler, really to say, we're really a technology enabling logistics. My first company, I didn't know it was a technology company because I never thought of it that way. But we use technology to do all the things that we did. I won't bore you with all of that. But now uh, with Linco, and and it's a very exciting prospect because we are now run by a originally a European foes, an American uh, now uh, called Carson Sorensen, that is really a genius in technology and applying that to logistics as opposed to what would normally be the other side around. Well, let's get all the logistics people and have them hopefully get enough technological experience, uh, you know, to do so. So, and this will be important for the industry. Uh, this Linco company, I think I, that would be my, at least my hope anyway. <laughs> I love that connection between logistics and technology, Lynn. I really can feel your passion for all this. And I really love that. And thank I you. appreciate that. And it was a wonderful talk. And thank you very much for being here at the Logistics Drive. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege, again, to be in the company of the people that we uh, talked about. There were such deserving leaders, you know, in, in the deals. And uh, so I do look forward to receiving you in the not distant future. Thank you for, for this. And I'm, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, speak to your readers and, and the rest. You well deserved the membership in the Logistics Hall of Fame, Lynn. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, my friend. Have a very good day. Right. That was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with Logistics Hall of Famer Lynn Fritz. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If so, don't forget to subscribe to the Logistics Tribe podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgentreer. Until next time.